It's fun that we're in the midst of a series about David. I love to walk through the story of David. It's probably one of the most actually complete stories that we have in Scripture. We know so much about him. And I'm sure that as we've walked through the story of David, you're starting to see more and more a few basic truths. And maybe the most basic truth is this. The scriptures are not filled with stories of people that we look at and we say, boy, that's, I want to do everything just like he did. You know, that's my hero, or gosh, she's my hero. You know, we don't preach, I want to be more like David, and I want to be more like Daniel, and I want to be more like Moses. Because we're understanding that the scripture, it's stories of people with very broken lives, a lot like you, a lot like me. Broken lives that apart from the grace of God would be absolutely lost. You see, David made so many mistakes all throughout his life. We've already talked through a bunch of them here. You know, he's a man that that does some great things in life, true? I mean, he's a poet, and he's an incredible leader, and he's a military commander, and he's a musician, and, you know, he has all of these amazing things in life, and yet he fails in so many parts of his life. As a man, he fails with shameful conduct with a woman whose name is Bathsheba. As a father, he fails with his son Absalom. And as a leader, he fails when God says, you know what, you don't have to number your people. But he says, you know what, for my sake, I want to make sure that we count everybody. And that ultimately brings this plague upon Israel. It's a man that's so confusing because at times he's so prideful. And yet this is the man in scripture who says, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down and just to be able to rest in him. So we're going to walk through a bit more of the story about David. And we're going to walk through a story which maybe lots of you don't know. It's a, it's a story which is a bit obscure, but it's one of my favorite stories about David in all of Scripture because I think it helps us to have insight into not just David, but ultimately it's an incredible picture of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me say this. If you don't have a Bible... If you would just raise your hand, because we're going to have some folks that are going to walk around with some Bibles. And you know what? If you don't have a Bible, I would just encourage you to grab one today, because we're going to spend a lot of time in Scripture. We're going to start off in 1 Samuel. And you know that this is a book which is written by this man, Samuel. He's a prophet. He was good friends with David. He knows about the story of David. So in many ways, this is a first-hand account. So we're going to start off in chapter 25. And we're going to look through the story. We're going to talk through these characters. You've got this one man in the story who is a little bit of this mean guy, as we'll learn. His name is Nabal. Or if you live in California, you know, Nabal. But because we're in the Midwest, we're just going to say Nabal. Is that all right? And he lives in Carmel. If you live in, you know, the West, you can say Carmel, but we're in the Midwest, we're just going to say Carmel. But it's a story about this man and the fact that there's this arrogance and this pride in him, which leads him into some hard situations. And then we're going to talk about his wife, who plays this incredible role, which ultimately points us to to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's start off, and let's talk about the arrogant work of this man, Nabal. So 1 Samuel chapter 25 Starting off in verse 1. Then David moved down into the desert of Moan. There's a man there in Moan who had property there at Carmel. He was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats, 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing there. And his name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and a beautiful woman. But her husband was a Calebite. He was surly and mean in all of his dealings. 
Now, you might be asking yourself, wait a second, it says that she's beautiful, but she's also intelligent. She couldn't have been that smart because she married a jerk, it sounds like, right? First of all, there's no way that his name was Nabal. You would never name your child that because in Hebrew, that word means fool. You wouldn't name your child fool. This has to be a nickname. This has to be a nickname that after a while, after he does stupid thing after stupid thing after a while, it's saying, let's just give him the name fool. It says actually in the Proverbs, the Nabal says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So this is very likely, this is just a nickname. So why would Abigail marry this guy? Because back then it was arranged marriages. This is not her choice. This would be her father saying, hey, here's a guy that's got some real estate. He's got some sheep. He's got some goats. He's got some money. I know that he can take care of you financially. So I'm going to make sure that you are cared for the rest of your life. So it would be her father's decision to say, you know what? You're going to marry this guy. Verse four, then you have the hero of the story, from our perspective oftentimes, but maybe not from the perspective of the Spirit. It's about David. It says that while he's there in the desert, he hears that this man Nabal was there actually shearing sheep. So he, David, sent 10 young men and said, hey, go up to this man Nabal and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time that they were there with us, nothing of theirs was missing to Carmel. Ask your own servants and they will tell you, therefore be favorable towards my young men since they come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. This is a very normal request. This would be very, very typical. Keep in mind that David at this point in his life, he's on the run from Saul. He's on the run with about 600 men. Now, even though you're on the run, you still have to find ways to eat, right? So it would be very, very common back then. You would find wealthy people that would have a lot of sheep, a lot of goats, and you would guard their flocks. And when it came time to actually shear sheep, you're going to go and you're going to get paid. Now, there's no contract. It was just understood. It's like a waitress in a restaurant. You go into a restaurant, there's no contract that you're going to pay. You know, if you do a great job, I'm going to you know, actually tip you. There's no contract. You just know that that's the way that it works. Back then, everybody knew that if I guard your flocks and if they're safe, when it comes time for this festival, you're going to pay me. So this is very typical. This is very normal that at this time you would go and you would get paid. So it says that when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited which means they said exactly what they were told to say, and then it's kind of like, you know, now would be the time to pay us. Uh, this is it. You know, I've come, and we've done these things, and please pay us with some food. You know, we, we need food for what we have done. But Nabal responds incredibly, not with grace, not with money or food, but with insults. It says that Nabal answered and says this, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men from, from, you know, from who knows where? These are my things. Hey, this is my food. This is my water. This is my meat. Why should I take all of this stuff that belongs to me? It's all mine. Why should I give it to you? That's an incredibly dangerous mindset when you start to think that what God has blessed you with, that those things are yours. 
When you start to say, hey, listen, this is my house, this is my car, this is my life, everything about this is mine. You see, when we start to think that we have what we have because we work really hard, we're incredibly naive. You might say, well, yeah, but you don't know my situation. I mean, I've worked really hard in life. I have what I have because I have pulled myself up by, by, you know, by my own bootstraps. I mean, we grew up extremely poor, and so to pay my way through school, you have no idea what I had to do. You have no idea how hard, how, you know, how hard I have to work in my job just to make ends meet. I have what I have because I'm a hard worker. I have what I have because I have just beat it my entire life, and I'm in my situation because of my hard work. If you believe that, you're incredibly naive. Some of my best friends are business people that live in Haiti. They're some of the hardest working people I know, but they're still very poor. Why? Because they live in Haiti. Because God allowed them to be born in Haiti, and that's why they're poor. I know folks around the world that are incredibly hardworking, and they have not had the opportunities that you all here have had. You have what you have by God's gracious hand. It says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24, verse 1, which means that God simply reminds us everything we have is from his gracious hand. Everything. And we start to think, you know what, it's mine and it's all about me. We come into a very dangerous place in life. As you might know about me, I've got five kids, and uh, we're very spread out. I've got a son, 27, all the way down to a little girl who's nine. So we have lots of different families in a sense. We're all spread out. But my nine-year-old is, is very gifted. She loves music, and she loves the piano, and she loves dance. And so uh, just about a month or so, so ago, I'm with lots of friends, and, and I said, you know what, Allie, this is a rare time in which we're with these friends and these family members. It'd be really fun if you would just play everybody a song on the piano. And she said, oh, Dad, I don't want to play on the piano, and you know, I'm just really embarrassed. And no, I'm like, you know what, Allie, come on, baby. It would be great. This is a great opportunity for you to play for everybody. Everybody would love it. And she just says, Dad, I really don't want to do that. So I start to press a little bit. Allie, sweetheart, I'm your dad. I really want you to play the piano for everybody. That'd be really great. And then she looks up at me with those beautiful nine-year-old dark eyes and utters these wonderful words. Dad, what's in it for me? There's actually a word for that. The word is acedia, which means what's in it for me? Hey, What's in this for me? How is this going to help me? Lots of you might know the term CBA. If you're involved in Christian you know, books, you might say, oh, yeah, Christian Booksellers Association. Or if you're a sports fan, you might say, oh, that was the old basketball league, you know, the Continental Basketball Association. But most of you here know what CBA stands for, cost-benefit analysis. You're constantly evaluating everything by, hey, essentially, what's in this for me? The problem is when we take that through every area of our life and we start to evaluate our friendships. You might even evaluate this church. And if I should join the church, hey, you know what? What's in it for me? What's going to happen with me here? When we start to have that mindset, we're walking down an incredibly dangerous path. This man, Nabal, is walking down that path. He's going down a path of saying, you know what? It's all mine. Everything here is mine. This all belongs solely to me. Without something bigger or a person bigger than you to work for, everything becomes about you and it places your your selfish self right at the middle of your life and that leaves us all in a very, very desperate place. But let's go on in the story. Let's look at the courageous work of Abigail, his amazing wife. 
Verse 12, you have David's men. They turn around and they go back, obviously empty-handed. And when they arrived, they reported every word. Verse 13 says this. So David says, well, since I'm a man after God's own heart, I want to be a peacemaker and I will forgive him for saying such stupid things. Is that what it says? No. It says this, put on your swords. Put on your swords. We're going to go slaughter everybody. We're going to go murder every male that belongs to anybody that has any tie with Nabal. We're going to go wipe them out. He says, put on your swords. So they put on their swords. David put, put, put on his. About 400 men went up with him. 200 stayed back and they watched all of their supplies. In other words, David says, you know what? We're going to get vengeance. This is judgment. This is revenge. In other words, we're going to go wipe them out. Now, I think when you talk with most people that they agree, you know what, I think that God's justice is a good thing. I think it's a good thing that we push for justice. However, when it comes to God being the one to execute justice upon us, oftentimes we start to push back and say, well, I don't know if I believe that that is the character of God. And while I'm all for justice, I really don't believe that God judges people. Why, why do we oftentimes have that hesitation? Because I think in our heart, we fear we may be enabled. We may be the fool that just is missing things. We may be the person that just can't see the Lord's anointed and God's coming judgment. We want justice for all. We just resist the idea that it might have something to do with us. Verse 14, but there's a servant there and he, he, he overhears the whole thing and he speaks then with this man's wife, Abigail. David sent some messengers here to give us his master's greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time that they were out there in the fields with us, nothing of ours was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us all the time that we were herding our sheep near them. Now, think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man, nobody can even talk to him. Verse 16, I love that phrase. Night and day, they were a wall around us. You see, that's God's claim upon our lives. Night and day, the Lord has been a wall around you. If you love Jesus Christ, if you follow Jesus, that's one of his promises to you. Night and day, he has been a wall around you. And maybe there are so many times you do not know it. There are so many times you cannot perceive what he is doing. It will not be one day until you're face-to-face with Jesus that you will be able to look back and say, I didn't even realize all these things he was doing for me. I didn't even realize all the ways in which he was amazingly protecting me. Night and day, the Lord is a wall around you. That's an incredible promise in Scripture. You might say, yeah, but you don't know, I I had a lost job, that was a terrible situation, or I was in this relationship and I thought that he or she was the one and that didn't work out. It might not be until you see Jesus face to face that it'll all become clear how many times God has protected you and you had no idea. Listen, I have no doubt that every day that God incredibly graciously protects me in ways that I will not see. I just can't see it. But I just have to just acknowledge, Lord, it might have been a car accident. It might have been, you know, some, some, you know, something, you know, financial or my children. I don't know. But incredible, night and day, the Lord is a wall around us. 
God has protected you in ways that you will absolutely never know. Verse 18, it says, Abigail lost no time. It's interesting now that three times in the text, we're going to see that she did things very, very quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and she loaded them up on her donkeys. In other words, she went shopping at the grocery store like there was a blizzard about to come. I mean, she packs up everything. Why? Because she knows that David and his men have done this work for her husband. There's a debt owed to David and his men. Her husband refused to pay it. So she says, I want to go ahead and be the one to, to pay it. Then she told all, all of the, all, you know, like, like all, all of these other people, go on ahead of me. I'll come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So then she comes riding her donkey into this mountain passage, a ravine, and there was this man, David, and all of his men, they're starting to come down towards her. They're bent on destruction, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over, all of this fellow's property in the desert, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male of theirs alive of all who of all there who are a part of his household. So in other words, you have David, 400 men, 400 men bent at this point on murder and revenge and destruction. And they come into this narrow mountain pass. They've got their swords out. This is a killing raid. They're bent on destruction. They're probably screaming at the top of their lungs. It's a scene that looks a lot like Braveheart. And then coming down the other way, you've got Abigail with a crock pot. And they meet in this mountain pass, and it's this incredible meeting. Because Abigail gets down, and she bows down on the ground. It says that she got quickly off of her donkey. She bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame fall on me alone. And then skipping down to verse 27. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Abigail becomes a picture of what is yet to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what she does. She gets there, she sees David, she immediately gets off of her donkey, bows down and says, let the blame fall on me. Was it her fault? No, it wasn't her fault. She didn't know what was happening. It was her husband's fault. It was Nabal's fault. And yet she says, you know what? All of this blame for what my husband has done, let the blame fall upon me. I realize that he owes you a debt, so I'm going to give you all of this food I've brought. This is for you to pay back that debt. Please, please extend forgiveness Extend forgiveness to my husband and all of the males in my household. Do you realize what she's done? It's an incredible act of grace, but ultimately it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ would one day do for us. We stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We are guilty because of our sin. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. So Jesus comes before his father and says, you know what, Heavenly Father, all of their sin... Let the blame fall on me. There's a price to be paid for what they've done, and the price to be paid is their very lives. You know what? I will give my life instead upon the cross. 
please extend forgiveness to them. It's one of the clearest pictures in all of Scripture of what ultimately Jesus Christ would come to do for you and for me. Amazing love, oh, what sacrifice, the Son of God given for me. My death he paid and my death he died that I might live. Then skipping down to verse uh, 35, then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words. I've granted your request. So when Abigail went home, this, her, her husband Nabal's there, and he's in the house holding a banquet, it says, like that of a king. He was in very high spirits. He was very drunk. He's living like he's the king. He knows, he's got to know that judgment is coming. He's got to know that vengeance, judgment is on the way, and yet he holds a banquet like he's the king. In other words, he's living as a practical atheist. He knows the Lord's anointed is coming, but he wants to completely ignore it. He doesn't want to act like it's actually true, so he just hosts this huge banquet and gets very, very drunk like he's the king. You see, I think that that's the way that we live so often. We reject the Lord's anointed. We reject that the Lord's anointed is going to one day come in judgment. So we go through our lives and we do everything just to live our lives on our own, just to be off on our own, just to drink, you know, all of these things that we might do, just to act like we are the king of our own lives. Every time that we sin, we are refusing to believe that in Jesus Christ we have everything that we need. And since I don't believe that, you know what? When I sin, I'm saying I've got to add something extra because I don't believe that God's grace is truly sufficient to meet my every need. So her husband is home. He's as drunk as can be. But it says in the text that she tells him nothing until daybreak. In the morning, finally, he sobers up. And so Abigail tells him all of these things. It says that his heart fails him. And he became like stone, so, which means he has a heart attack and he goes into a coma. And then it says, and 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. And then the text goes on to tell us that at that point, David calls Abigail to be his wife. She marries him. Nabal rejected the Lord's anointed. He lived as if he were the king of his entire life. He lived like he were the boss and the Lord took his life. But the work of Abigail is incredible because it's gracious, it's kind, and it reflects ultimately what is to come in the person of Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus and his part of the story because everything in the story points to the redemptive work of Jesus. You see, I think that many Christians have a faulty view of the gospel because we emphasize performancism. All right, is that a word? Performancism? I think that we have this mindset that we have to do more and more and more to make our life secure. And I think that we hear more and more sermons that are, hey, you know what, you need to do these things and you need to be more like David and be more like Daniel and be more like these people as opposed to understanding that the gospel is our only solution out there. The trying harder doesn't make things right. That ultimately we need to rest in what Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, all of our performancism is contrasts is, is you know it's a massive massive contrast which with what we hear from jesus in matthew 11 in verse 28 which says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart 
for you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the goal is to lift high the finished work of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest works of art, which has endured for over 200 years, is the writings of a man named Victor Hugo, who wrote an amazing story called Les Miserables. Les Miserables is the story of grace. It is a story of God's just amazing mercy. It involves a man named Jean Valjean, who is a convict. He was put in prison because he stole a loaf of bread. He serves for 19 years. Finally, he's out on parole and he needs to go find a job. But everywhere he goes, he has papers which openly identify him as being a criminal and nobody wants to have anything to do with him. So he goes from place to place and searching for some type of lodging, searching for some type of food or anything that he can do just to make ends meet. And he is turned away at door after door after door. He is so frustrated, he thinks there's no hope. Finally, he... Finally, he winds up at the home of a bishop of a church. And this bishop is the first person that has really treated him like a person. This bishop invites him in and and feeds him and treats him like a brother. Jean Valjean looks around the home and he sees that there is great wealth in this home. All over this home is silver. And so that night, while the bishop sleeps, Valjean tries to repay his kindness in the worst possible way. He steals massive amounts of the silver and leaves. Well, very soon the police catch up to him and take Jean Valjean back to the home of that bishop. And they say, we caught this man with all of your silver. And then there is the hinge of the entire story. When this bishop says, you know what? Actually, I gave him that silver. And Jean Valjean, you forgot to take the candlesticks with you. So he gives him these candlesticks. But he reminds him that what has just happened is an act of grace. And that he wants this act of grace to transform the life of this man Jean Valjean. Well, what has happened turns his life upside down. He doesn't know how to process it. He doesn't know how to deal with this because his entire life, he has never experienced grace. But maybe for the first time ever, this man has extended kindness to him in a way that he does not have any categories. What just happened? There have been books, you know, obviously about this. There have been plays about this. There have been, you know, lots of musicals about this. And they made a movie about this, again, just about a year and a half ago. I trust that lots of you saw it. It's an incredible movie. And what if you haven't seen it? Watch it today. It's a tremendous, tremendous movie. But in this musical that was just made, this is really the hinge scene in which Jean Valjean is struggling and trying to process, what does this mean for me? Here's how it plays out in the movie. What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate, the cries in the dark that nobody hears? Here where I stand at the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and they murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead. 
Just by stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world. This world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack instead he offers me my freedom I feel my shame inside me like a knife he told me that I had a soul how does he know what spirit comes to move my Is there another way to go? One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? Yes! The answer to the question is, yes, there is another way to go. The way of grace as opposed to the way of the law. You see, this is a picture of what God has done. You see, from this moment forward, Valjean will take the way of grace. He doesn't become amazingly superhuman, or even less of a broken vessel. But from here on out, his life will be fueled more by gratitude than greed, more by giving than trying to receive, more by love than, my, than by fear. You see, this moment of grace changes him in the way that a lifetime of punishment absolutely never could. It's a picture of him being changed by the word of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. This is so important. The law exposes Jean Valjean and us. Grace exonerates him. The law diagnoses him, but grace delivers him. The law accuses him. Grace acquits him. The law says cursed. The gospel says blessed. The law says slave. The gospel says son. The law says guilty. The gospel says you are forgiven. The law can break a hard heart, but only grace can heal a hardened heart, which is precisely what happens to Jean Valjean in the story. Listen, he may be a fictional character, but the emotions, the feelings, the story is not fictional. Some, some of us are in tears as we watch that. Why? Because we long to be shown grace when we know that we deserve punishment. We long to be treated as a son, 
as opposed to being put under the shackles of guilt and shame. We deserve reproach, and yet we long for sympathy. It points us to the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the hinge of the story, but that is the hinge of our story in life. The hinge of our story is when we realize that there is a debt that has to be paid, that Jesus Christ comes before his Father and says, I will take the blame, I will pay the debt, please extend forgiveness to these people. That is the hinge for all of our life. If you're a Christian, your identity is anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel frees us from this obsessive pressure to become, and it frees us simply to be who we are in Jesus. It liberates us by putting our identity in Jesus. You see, there are some practical results of what Jesus Christ has done. The fact that he has said, I'll take the blame. I will pay the debt. Extend forgiveness. There are some practical outcomes for you and for me. Our humiliation becomes hope in Jesus Christ. Our performance now becomes grace in Jesus Christ. Our shame and our guilt is now transferred to being forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Our sin is now enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And death is ultimately conquered and we have life in Jesus Christ. The gospel says my grace is sufficient for you. That is what God offers you today. What the Lord offers us is that hinge in life. It's that new beginning. It's that Jean Valjean moment when God says, I give you everything. My pardon, my forgiveness, my very life. That is the greatest gift. That is the gospel. The truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us.